Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spiris Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Orjun Banerjee, a PhD student in jurisprudence and social policy at the University of California, Berkeley. We will discuss his draft article, No Trial Executions, Police Killings, the Eighth Amendment, and Transformative Proceduralism. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Really excited to be in conversation with you. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm really glad to have you on. I found your paper incredibly provocative and thought-provoking, and I can't wait to hear more from you. So, Michael, I was wondering, by way of situating our listeners in, in the sort of the project of the paper, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by no trial executions. Of course, of course. Thank you for the question. Um, in order to do that, Brian, if you don't mind, I might just back up about 40 years to when the famous criminologist Lawrence Sherman wrote his seminal piece on the penal aspects of police killings um, in an article called uh, Execution Without Trial. And then decades later, um, you have the constitutional law scholar, Jelani Jefferson Axum, writing about the death penalty in the streets uh, in her 2015 article uh, by the same name. But these, you know, important interventions, notwithstanding, as I say in the paper, um, few people in the legal academy have really interrogated the penal dimensions of police killings. Um, so I'm trying to draw on that literature and, and, and carve out some more space. Uh, in the U.S., as you know, Brian, the, the state kills civilians via two main mechanisms. There's, of course, the formal death penalty, what I call on the paper the post-trial execution, which is exactly what it sounds like it is. Uh, this is an execution that follows an arrest, trial, conviction, and sentencing, and, and usually some very lengthy appeals. Um, and it's also administered by state officials in private death chambers. And then there's the informal death penalty, what I call the no-trial execution. Um, and this is an execution uh, that follows no due process whatsoever. Uh, and it's usually administered in public by police officers. Uh, we usually refer to the no-trial execution as uh, the police killing. Now, through this essay, I'm, I'm trying to take these arguments offered first by Professor Sherman and, and Jefferson Exum um, beyond kind of just analogization. Um, and so the idea is to place the police killing, the no trial execution, within the ambit of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the Supreme Court and how the legal system more generally conceptualizes execution in these two contexts differently. In other words, sort of what's the view of the state's role and relationship to post-trial executions, the ones that are, you know, I think people are more familiar with calling them executions as a matter of sort of colloquial language and the way that the, the state kind of conceptualizes no trial executions, as it were, in terms of its responsibility for them. Absolutely. Um, so, and this is one of the, the the main aims of the paper, it's to kind of bring to our attention, uh, as I see it, the fact that there's very little that separates the two uh, kind of modes of state killing. Uh, but the state has, when it comes to the post-trial execution, has a great deal of responsibility. Uh, the state has to provide one with a lawyer. The state has to, um, you know, 
give one a, a fair trial um, has to, and the trial of course has to be uh, kind of uh, overseen by a jury of, of one's peers and so on. So you, you have all of these uh, procedural protections uh, that attach when the state tries to subject one to uh, the post-trial execution. Um, and that execution is, is thought of as, uh, as being subject to Eighth Amendment scrutiny um, and regulation by the Eighth Amendment and its prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. In the no trial context, uh, the Fourth Amendment reigns supreme. And uh, this might be useful for, uh, for some listeners, but as you know, Brian, uh, we get this Fourth Amendment standard in the no trial execution context from a very famous 1989 Supreme Court case uh, called Graham v. Connor, uh, where the state articulated its, its you know, explicitly articulated its Fourth Amendment um, uh, a kind of uh, analysis of police violence, deadly or otherwise. And that's where we also get uh, the very troublesome uh, and troubling reasonableness uh, uh, inquiry. So that's kind of how uh, the, the courts have, have addressed it, broadly speaking. And one of the issues is, of course, that uh, you end up getting a, a good amount of protections uh, in, in the procedural sense when it comes to the post-trial execution, but you get none of those protections uh, when it comes to the no-trial execution. And of course, the end result is uh, the same, uh, you know, with a, with a civilian uh, being subjected to the punishment of death. And this struck me as a really kind of interesting and important distinction between the way we kind of conceptualize the Fourth Amendment and the Eighth Amendment in the sense that, you know, there is this kind of reasonableness element to the Fourth Amendment, the way we think about the culpability and responsibility of the state. And we don't think of like there being a kind of a reasonableness element to the Eighth Amendment, at least not in the same sense, at least not in the sense of like whether the state is authorized to use deadly force in the first place. Is that right? I think that's right. I mean, the the Eighth Amendment uh, says nothing about reasonableness. And, uh, you know, it, now, of course, a court could read into the Eighth Amendment a reasonableness standard. Um, but one of the great merits, I think, the virtues of the Eighth Amendment in this context and many people warn me uh, and would suggest otherwise, many law professors have suggested otherwise, but I think one of the merits of the Eighth Amendment is that it has no reasonableness. I mean, reasonableness is not articulated in, in the text of the Eighth Amendment. And so because of that, we can kind of look to it uh, to suggest that, uh, you know, this, this reasonableness inquiry uh, can be avoided uh, if we turn to the Eighth Amendment uh, in the programmatic sense, meaning that... Uh, uh, we subject uh, what I see as a, a state program um, to Eighth Amendment scrutiny uh, without having necessarily to get to what would be a very uh, uh, burdensome uh, individual standard, or I should say individual action standard when it comes to the application of any uh, given punishment. Uh, but what I mean to say here is that uh, when on the programmatic level, we can avoid the reasonableness inquiry uh, by turning to the Eighth Amendment rather than the Fourth Amendment. Mm, mm. So to like kind of shift our constitutional frame, as it were, to say, you know, we should be looking at this problem uh, as an execution across the board, not as two fundamentally different kinds of executions and be looking at, be looking at it through this Eighth Amendment kind of 
frame that requires absolute uh, fealty to constitutional obligations as opposed to the kind of looser standard of the Fourth Amendment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so maybe you could talk a little bit about why you think the Eighth Amendment should apply in this context, or, or maybe, maybe even better to kind of start by talking about what elements you think are necessary for the Eighth Amendment to be the relevant frame through which we should look at state action? That's a great question. Let me give, give that some thought. Well, Brian, this is first and foremost, uh, you know, and, I, and maybe I should have said this at the outset, this paper is really not an Eighth Amendment paper. I'm happy to answer the question, of course, and, and thankful for it. It's, it's not a Fourth Amendment paper, and it's also not a Fourteenth Amendment paper. Um, it's a paper that's more so about um, shifting consciousness uh, than it is about procedure, although I have a, a good amount to say about, about procedure and, and the like. Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, when we should uh, attach or consider a governmental program or governmental actions in the Eighth Amendment context, um, I'm looking first and foremost to kind of uh, a bottom-up understanding or theory of punishment. Um, let me just say this. From the standpoint of somebody subjected to a no-trial execution, uh, you know, there is very little difference uh, uh, to that person, um, whether uh, there, you know, it was uh, conceptualized, and by it I mean the state action, conceptualized by courts and as, uh, you know, subject to Eighth Amendment scrutiny or Fourth Amendment scrutiny, because the, the end result is the same. The end result is uh, the deprivation of life. And in this case, of course, it's without due process of law. In the paper, I say very little about, uh, say, the Fifth Amendment or Fourteenth Amendment, but of course, those, those amendments which make up a suite of amendments that I have called the punishment amendments, um, have a lot to say about no trial executions. Uh, but what we're looking at here is end result. And the end result is the deprivation of life. And, and by the way, the depri- deprivation of life uh, for having done or not done something um, that the state, through its police, agrees with or disagrees with. So, so in that sense, in the, in the kind of most basic sense, this is a bottom-up understanding of punishment and uh, from the standpoint of the one who is subjected to this kind of treatment, uh, there's very little difference, very little to distinguish the two forms of, of state killing. So from that standpoint, uh, the Eighth Amendment should apply where life is taken. Mm-hmm. Well, that was one thing that really, that really struck me was like, I'd never thought about the sort of police action on the street as being kind of something that ought to be placed in the context of punishment as opposed to policing. But it does seem like it has a kind of a punishment or even a penal aspect to it in many different ways. That's right. And I think there's, there's been a, a good amount of research done on, uh, you know, so-called street level bureaucrats, governmental bureaucrats, including police, um, who are, are different than other street-level uh, governmental bureaucrats in, in important ways, but also quite similar. And, you know, street-level governmental bureaucrats tend to think about their work as a punishment in certain contexts. Um, and, and there's actually a long history, and I situated in the paper, or situated no trial execution, in, 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 you know, historically in the paper uh, in this history, 
uh, uh, which tends to show that from the get-go, the police wanted to make sure that they distinguished themselves from punishers. Um, they weren't going to usurp the uh, judicial function of, of determining punishment. Um, and I think that they've, and others have suggested as much, they've failed in doing that. Um, and, and so when we look at it from these three different vantage points, you know, one, the vantage point of the person who's being punished, uh, two, the vantage point of uh, the, the punisher, uh, and, and then three, the vantage point of the observer of these phenomena, we, we can start to see that there are really penal, kind of there's a, a, a penal streak that runs through this practice. And from, and once again, if we, if we look at it from this point of view, then uh, it starts to, the two kind of genres of police, or sorry, of, of state killing collapse into one. Mm, mm. Well, and that's what really, like, the history you told of this kind of gradual professionalization of the police seemed to kind of parallel or even kind of be a, a motivation or way of accomplishing a way of enforcing state social control over certain populations. That's exactly right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, it just, it, what really hit me reading the paper was the way in which the more you think about kind of the increase in policing and the mode of policing as being the state trying to exercise coercive social control in particular contexts, the easier it becomes to see these kinds of extrajudicial no trial executions, as you put it, as on a continuum rather than being distinct from, you know, executions that take place after a trial or really any kind of punishment when it comes right down to it. That's exactly right, Brian. I agree. Wow. Wow. I mean, so, so, so this was like, this was a, 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 a really different way for me of looking at this problem. But, but I sort of wonder, I mean, to the extent we think of policing as, as you put it, kind of turning certain neighborhoods or communities into kind of de facto open air prisons where people are continually under surveillance and continually under threat of punishment. Like, how should that change the way we think about the state's role in, you know, the way it affects the people living in those communities? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that we should probably get away from the idea that punishment only happens after there's been uh, some kind of uh, something that we would recognize as process, a trial or a hearing or the like. Um, punishment can occur uh, before any of that happens. Uh, and it certainly does in those, in you know, the low-income neighborhoods, but we, you know, call the black ghettos. Uh, it certainly happens. Um, and that's, and, you know, this is a, uh, there's some good theoretical work being done by Loic Laquan and others um, that shows that this is the case. Um, so if we can get away from that understanding, uh, then I think that we would, uh, we would, the problem would come into better focus. Uh, but of course, with Dicton in the Graham case that I mentioned earlier, uh, it, it makes it very difficult because, of course, the suggestion there by the court is that 
uh, punishment only happens after uh, you know states have abided by uh, the strictures of due process. So what happens when uh, there's been no due process? Uh, there can be no punishment. So you know we I think we do well to get away from that idea. Mm. And there's almost like a catch twenty two there in a sense that like you know only after you've been sort of only after the state has decided to put you in the box that says you get process do does do any of these sort of punishment based protections seem to apply in a way that put meaningful restrictions on the state's ability to exercise discretion and if the state chooses not to put you in the box or hasn't kind of hasn't been forced to put you in that box yet, then the level of state discretionary action that it can take without being subject to limitations is just really vast. I think that's exactly right. Um, and and while we're on this point, I, I think I, it might be a good, a good point out just that we need a way to intervene ex ante before uh, the the police object want someone to a no trial execution uh, because to my mind uh, the rule of you know a rule of law that offers only post hoc or you know after the fact uh, 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 kind of uh, remedies uh, when uh, the, the the state action results in irreparable harm is a rule of law not worth very much at all. So the, the, one of the main ideas of the paper is to suggest that uh, for there to be really, a, a, you know, for the state to uh, at least aspire to rule of law, we have to have a way to uh, intervene and actually a fair shot at, uh, of succeeding, I think, uh, before the state subjects someone to a no trial execution. And as it stands today, there's no way to do that. Mm. So in the paper, you use a term called transformative proceduralism. And, and I think that you're, my understanding is you're using that term as a kind of a big picture way of talking about the problem you were just addressing. Could, could you maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by transformative proceduralism and how you might see that as different from the more maybe sanitized or less sort of less transformative proceduralism that we might normally think of in a criminal justice context or any other context? Of course. Um, in short, transformative proceduralism is a project that employs procedure um, to transform by limiting the realm of possibilities. Uh, this isn't what Stanley Fish has called the thin proceduralism of liberalism, um, and by liberalism, of course, here I mean the political, philosophical experiment and, and not the contemporary political ideology. Um, this proceduralism is a thick proceduralism. It's, it's one that is um, politically rich rather than politically vacuous. It's a proceduralism that has been purposefully imbued with political ambition rather than one that's been kind of separated and disarticulated from politics. This political ambition is, you know, to kind of uh, get down to the nitty gritty, uh, is to bring within the realm of legality uh, the police killing. So in, in a word, uh, the idea of transformative proceduralism uh, is the idea that we can use procedure and the rule of law 
um, to bind police action in order to transform what the police do. Mm. Uh, so it, you know, to put, put it a bit differently, uh, the idea here is to stultify what, uh, you know, certain modes of policing that end up with, uh, you know, uh, civilians uh, being killed in the street. So one thing that struck me about your use of the term and the way you deployed a concept was that, I mean, it does seem to me like the sort of the history of the last 40 or 50 years, or maybe even more, of of capital punishment jurisprudence has had elements of transformative proceduralism insofar as many kind of procedural or quasi-procedural moves have been made in ways to sort of make it a lot more difficult to actually follow through with the death penalty. And yet in the pre-trial or no trial or, you know, fourth, fifth amendment context that primarily fourth amendment context that, that you're sort of dealing with or the context in which we think of as embodying fourth amendment issues rather than eighth amendment issues. It seems like the procedure has really gone the other way in, in, in the sense of like finding exceptions to what would otherwise be, or what kind of conceivably could have been more robust protections. That's exactly right. And uh, this has been pointed out by some uh, some folks who have reviewed the paper in its early stages, um, that this is one of the dangers of suggesting that uh, police killing should be subjected to Eighth Amendment interrogation. Um, because, of course, uh, if you transform the one uh, by linking it to the other, then you also transform the other. Mm. So one of the dangers here is that uh, the court can make so thin, might render so thin, the procedural protections um, that they may just be meaningless. Um, on the other hand, you know, the danger of not doing this is that uh, you have, and last I checked, it's over it's over 600 people that have been um, killed by the police just this year, according to Washington Post's uh, fatal force tracker, which has some problems. But um, you know, it's it's an incredible amount of violence being done unto civilians. So you know, it's. If there, there are risks with this project, um, but there are risks that I think uh, we should be willing to take. Yeah, yeah. Well, so maybe you could give a, a few concrete examples of what you think a transformative proceduralism ought to look like in this kind of context. I mean, what, what would it mean for courts and for the state as a whole to improve pose meaningful kind of procedural requirements on the police before they engage in the use of force in a pretrial context. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, you know, I should just note that I try to avoid thinking too much about uh, administrability and and the like, um, especially when it's, uh, you know, when it comes to a program that I see uh, as being constitutionally required because I found that the function of that kind of thinking is to limit the realm of possibilities only to the realm of the status quo, but I don't mean to dodge your question. Um, I think there's, there's a strong claim and a weak claim. The strong claim here would require, um, importantly prior to any discharge of a firearm by police, the approval of an independent disinterested magistrate after a trial on the merits. And the weak claim would require no trial, but 
you know, some prior judicial evaluation. Uh, and, and once again, uh, you know, I try not to think too much about the administrability of the program, um, but this, of course, would give, uh, would be very, very difficult for police to, uh, to abide by. Um, but that's kind of how I think about it. There's, you know, once again, a strong claim and a weak claim. Um, but that's how we could bring maybe um, the idea or the concept of transformative proceduralism, <clears throat> excuse me, from heaven to earth. Mm-hmm. Well, but I mean, it seems to me, I mean, if you take a really big picture perspective on it, right? I mean, the story of the Eighth Amendment, at least as I see it, is abolitionists, death penalty abolitionists, looking to the Eighth Amendment and Eighth Amendment values as a way of hopefully eventually bringing an end to capital punishment, right? But it didn't happen right away. In fact, it hasn't happened yet, right? At least not in a lot of places. And in, in any case, it was incremental, right? I mean, it went one step at a time, relying initially on a lot of procedural changes and only eventually kind of in some places becoming substantive changes to the law. And so like, even though the project that kind of, as you know, like the big picture project you're proposing seems like unworkable or unrealistic or unthinkable today. I mean, I'm sure it must've seemed unthinkable to a lot of people in the death penalty context as well. And yet in both cases, like I don't actually more so in the case that you're describing, nobody wants to see people being killed without a trial. Right. I mean, there is no deliberation of any kind. I mean, it seems like the ultimate substantive goal is actually less controversial in some ways. It's just a question of how much do we want to defer to the state? I think that's right. And, you know, I I just want to note parenthetically that, you know, we had nationwide uh, judicial abolition, the death penalty in, in 1972. But, you know, this this seems like it might be an opportune moment um, to maybe raise and address a concern that uh, is likely to come to the minds of many listeners and eventually many readers of the paper. Um, some would worry that the program that I've outlined might leave communities more vulnerable to uh, the so-called mass shooting. And, and you know, I hear this concern often, uh, and I really began engaging with it uh, when I wrote, uh, not to get you know, too, too off track here, but when I wrote about the 30th anniversary of Graham v. Connor, uh, which came down exactly 30 years ago on May 15th of this year. Uh, and I wrote that short piece, which discussed uh, the case's long reach in the Black newspaper, the Charlotte Post, uh, and revisited the case in light of the horrific killing of Dan Kearse Franklin by Charlotte police this past March. And I should note also that um, the facts uh, out of which the Graham case grew took place first in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is why I wrote in the Charlotte Post. Um, now, on April 30th, about two weeks before the piece was supposed to be published, um, the horrific shooting at UNC Charlotte took place, uh, where I think two people were killed and, and four were injured. And because I only had 800 words, I decided not to address that tragedy uh, in the Graham piece, but it made it clear that uh, this kind of argument would probably be the strongest one, at least in political terms, against my proposed program. But with that said, um, to my mind, the era of the mass shooting is exactly the time 
that we should be reimagining our approach to police violence. In my view, the police in the U.S., uh, and they're, depending on who you ask, between 16 and 18,000, um, you know, law enforcement or police organizations in the country, uh, to the extent that they can be considered a, a group of institutions with shared commitments, considerations, and so on, um, they engage in deadly gun violence on a mass scale across space and time. And now, you know, in this way, police as an institution um, and the civilian mass shooter uh, have much in common. And I should say, I don't mean for that to sound overly polemical. Um, you know, as I said, in the Washington Post Fatal Force Tracker last I checked, and it was earlier this week, 689 people were killed by police in the U.S. this year alone. Um, and it's important to highlight that this database doesn't include those who've been killed by police using tasers, attack dogs, uh, horses, uh, bombardment, uh, or another method. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's to say that there's a lot of violence being done unto civilians in the U.S. Uh, you know, Frank Zimmering, who teaches at Berkeley Law, estimates that, uh, you know, between 929 and uh, about 1,200 no-trial executions take place in the U.S. in a given year. So in, in this way, the police perpetrate mass deadly gun violence and, and should be considered, in my view, uh, in the same conversation as those so-called lone wolves, um, allowing for important differences between the two, of course. Um, and, and when framed this way, it becomes clear that my project and uh, that of those who wish to do away with mass gun violence are one and the same. Uh, and this is all to say, Brian, that when we talk about you know, deadly police uh, gun violence on the one hand, and then mass civilian gun violence on the other hand, I think we make a crucial mistake. And, and that mistake is not recognizing that it isn't one, pro, you know, one problem uh, on this hand and the other problem on the other hand, um, but that the two problems actually go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really struck me that in one way, sort of like the big picture elephant in the room in your paper, as it were, is that if we think about the police institutionally, we don't have to blame individual police officers for exercising poor discretion when they choose to use or not use violence, although we, I think we should in many circumstances, but, but we should think of the institution as making institutional choices to encourage or discourage the use of, of violence and that the rules the institution sets for itself and the rules that the judiciary enforces on those governmental institutions in effect encourage institutional choices to engage in this kind of killing in a way that doesn't look like it's a choice, but it is. That's right. That's right. We don't have to get to the culpability um, for the purposes of my project of the individual police officer, um, because if it's not that police officer, then it's the next one. As you say, the institutional um, kind of the, the way that the institutions have structured uh, so-called police community relationships uh, have have made it such that those relationships are susceptible or the, you know, the civilians that find themselves in those kinds of interactions are susceptible to this kind of deadly violence. 
So you're exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Well, so Michael, I wonder if in closing, you could reflect a little bit on something that I found really interesting about this paper and this project more generally, and that you've talked a little bit about earlier in our interview, but but I'd like to hear you reflect on a little bit more, which is that you say in the paper that this, you know, this paper engages with the law and engages with kind of the constitution and with constitutional doctrine, but isn't necessarily directly about the law or the constitution or constitutional doctrine, but kind of encouraging or provoking people to think about them in new and creative ways. And you actually used the word delight in the paper, which I thought was bold and, and really got me thinking as well, which I think is what you, I hope with what you were tending. Um, so, I mean, I, so I wonder if you could talk about that project a little bit as a legal writer and how you think that that approach to your scholarship informs, informs the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Um, I think that when, you know, we, where we find death and destruction, uh, we might also find delight and, and the kind of delight that I envision and that I, that I talk about in the paper is delight by challenging, delight by challenging legal actors um, to rethink uh, their approaches, um, delight by challenging law professors uh, to rethink the doctrine and the like. Um, but the, you know, underneath uh, the bevy of aims that I set out in the paper um, that, that we probably shouldn't get into um, uh, there's kind of a desire to demonstrate uh, a certain and, and different mode of engagement, a mode of engagement that's, you know, at once liberated from the more restrictive norms of legal scholarship and is also bounded by a legal principle that itself may liberate. So this is what I, I try to demonstrate throughout the paper, uh, but, you know, whether or not I've succeeded or indeed whether or not it's, you know, this is a worthy undertaking is something that I leave for commentators and, and my colleagues to evaluate. Well, I can say that it certainly got me thinking a lot and I learned a lot from it and it really changed my perspective on the questions that you were posing in ways that I hadn't anticipated before I started reading it. So I appreciate it a lot and I can't wait to read the final draft. I can't wait either. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a delight. Here they come, hippity boop, the man in blue, hopper the bop, the sergeant's there, ribbity boop, the patrolman too, hopper the bop, the chief looks great, hopper the bop, the captain's straight, ribbity boop, hip hip hooray, the royal crew, hopper the bop, the bop, you always try to swing with a policeman, and never ring a ding, a policeman, and if you're really hip, you'll never make a slip against the majesties. The policeman! <laughs> <laughs>